Hi, and welcome to another episode of Focal Point. Today, I'm joined by Claire Marchand. Claire is the CEO for UCAS, the University Clearance and Admissions Service. Prior to this, she was working at the Department of Health uh, and also working at Deloitte Consulting. How are you doing today, Claire? Hello. Yes, good. For those who aren't as familiar, could you tell us a bit about what your role entails on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Chief Executive of the University College Admission Service, which means that all of the running of uh, both it, and it's an independent charity, and its commercial subsidiary, which I'll come back to, UCAS Media, um, I'm ultimately responsible for. Um, so that includes everything from reputation and governance, working with stakeholders, through to delivery of, of digital products and services to customers, through to staff well-being, and obviously dealing with things like the, the global pandemic and how that affects your business. We are funded from three different sources, so from applicants, from those students at universities, when students are placed at university. But our biggest source of funding, about 42%, comes from UCAS Media, our commercial subsidiary. So quite a lot of my effort will go into making sure that financially, as a £50 million business, that that commercial subsidiary is delivering. That's very interesting. What is it? So UCAS Media is a sort of a publication uh, advertising platform, is that correct? Yeah, sort of. I mean, basically, it's um, so it started, if you think, sort of 10, 15 years ago, where its products were primarily to uh, education clients, so universities, and it would have been things like direct mail on behalf of universities through applicants' post boxes, but also targeted emailing campaigns. Today, 10, 15 years later, it has both education clients, but also commercial clients across the telecoms uh, sector, finance sector, retail sector, who want to connect with either pre-applicants or first-year students primarily. And they will be a variety of different ways they want to do this. So we still do targeted email, um, but also we do um, an accommodation portal. We do a discount platform. Uh, we do a lot in terms of uh, social media, so paid social media uh, targeting. So it's a variety of different media products uh, that we offer to both commercial and education clients. That's very interesting. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how you sort of came to work with UCAS? Sure. So I went to um, Hull University back in 1990 to 1993. And at the time, I was attracted to their history and politics department, a guy called Philip Norton, who's running their politics department. So I, I particularly wanted to go there. And I had some limitations in terms of geographically where I could go. And I finished there and I was a graduate trainee for Rankovis McDougall, which probably people would know best as providing Hovis bread and flour and Kipling cakes and things like that. So a very big food manufacturing business that still exists today in a different guise. And I went through to be a production engineering manager with them. I started my master's with the Open University under my, my time at Rankovis. And it was really an ad in the Times newspaper that attracted me to Deloitte. I thought, actually, I'm going to end up doing manufacturing for the rest of my life. And I'd like to explore, you know, other avenues and consulting is a good good way to do that. And I spent seven and a half years at Deloitte and absolutely loved it. It was one of the high points of my career, working for a variety of clients. And then a Deloitte partner went went off and, and ran what was then called the National Programme for IT in the NHS and asked me to join him. And I saw that was a great opportunity to to take responsibility for something with consulting one of the slight frustrations with consulting is you are always advising and consulting rather than the actual accountability and then from there again spent eight years there uh, loved it um, achieved some great things um, and had my son and decided I needed to you know not travel around the UK uh, every single week to all four corners and uh, take something more local so hence my time at Worcestershire County Council didn't expect to become chief exec um, but four years in became chief exec there and 
and then and then saw UCAS again, you know, saw UCAS and thought, do you know what, this is a great combination of my experience, digital, medium-sized organisation, high reputation stakes, and joined UCAS nearly four years ago now, three and a half years ago. That's great. So you touched on your role in Deloitte, then you moved over to the public sector. Could you tell a bit about your experience on sort of the differences between, from an employee perspective, how sort of private and public sector work differs? Yeah, I think there is a difference. You know, when I went into local government, the demographic was different. So a lot more um, of an older workforce in, in lots of different areas. Lots of people who had been there a very long time. So, you know, the proportion of people who had been there over 10 or 20 years was significantly higher. Whereas coming into UCAS, 50% of people are under 35, you know, and you would get perhaps a younger demographic in some private sector companies. But these are quite generalist statements. And I wouldn't want to mislead people because I think every public and private you know company is is very different you know so these are generalizations you know what struck me with both local government but also the nhs is the the care and passion people have for, for when i'm at work you know the fact that they really care that the nhs uh, makes a difference even if they're in quite senior management roles the fact that in local government you have people handling very different difficult you know child protection cases and that's a usually stressful role and they really care about it so i think there's pluses and minuses of both public and private it's more about if you're going into one of those going in with your eyes wide open and asking the right questions about what is the culture um, you know how fast-paced is it what's the focus on uh, commercial value versus you know altruistic value versus you know sort of more long medium term versus sh- short-term goals and it's asking those sorts of questions I think is key when you go into either. Right that's interesting do you think sort of that commercial uh awareness and focus on the numbers is sort of one of the big takeaways and sort of how you approached public sector work having moved from the private sector. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the things that I, you know, probably is at the top of my CV and I sell myself on is the ability to bring a focus on value in tangible terms uh, to organisations that perhaps um, are used to just talking it in, in vagaries or, you know, big picture to actually say, really, what is the value for this customer? Uh, what are the costs and benefits we are looking at and fo- focus and, and relentlessly hone in on those? Um, it's part of, I suppose, what my, my, my personal USP is. That's interesting. On a slightly different note, what do you think have been the biggest changes within sort of higher education, whether it's on the university or secondary school level over the last decade? Yeah, I think the sorts of things I think are quite exciting and I'd look to see more of both from higher education and secondary education is certainly around uh, digital. I think the pandemic has had to force that for a lot of education institutions, whether they be schools or universities or colleges. And they've really had to step up a gear. I think the focus on, you know, physical estate, particularly universities and colleges, has been, you know, quite well established. You know, you you come go to some university towns, and a lot of the buildings are university buildings or university accommodations. So there's been a long uh, history now, at least in the last ten years, of what does that physical estate look like? But the digital estate is often it's harder to justify sometimes in a in a business case to say this is the value of investing millions of pounds in digital. Digital, but the the expectations from both applicants but students young people 
I think the the only other thing I'd I'd say in terms of perhaps uh, one that I've seen grow, but I want to see more of, is that relationship between schools and businesses. I don't think it starts early enough, and I don't think very often there's language barriers in terms of how schools articulate uh, their priorities, how businesses articulate their priorities. The more we can bring schools and businesses together to understand that you know what we're not doing with with young people is just producing them for a world of work. There is also about learn, you know them learning how to be independent, how to analyze how to turn up on time you know how to see something through how to persevere there's all those generic skills but equally they need to have skills that enable them to be really productive when they go into the role of their choice so I think more of that is needed and I have seen the emerging signs of that over the last uh, five ten years I think the thing that worries me most around what I've seen in terms of I suppose student and applicant experience is increasing um, mental health concerns and I think mental health is a big catch-all for for low-level anxiety all the way through to to perhaps more serious issues and and how much you know social media or any of us play into that in terms of expectations and and I think that's something we all need to to grab a hold of. How do you think that some mental health concerns can uh, be alleviated if you sort of take a step back and sort of look at the education system, you have nursery and then primary school and then secondary school and then university and then you take a job and it's sort of like quite a streamlined pipeline. It's kind of almost like a treadmill, some people feel. Um, yes. How far do you think that we can mitigate mental health concerns that are very genuine and important? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there is a number of things we can do. So just picking two, we've got a potential skills paper coming. And I I hope what that will say is that actually education should be a lifelong experience. And I think this idea that you necessarily have to do things in a certain order, and actually there's only, you know, one natural next step when you reach 18, if you've got the grades, I think we need to break that down. Uh, So giving other options for 18-year-olds, making it clear how you access those, um, enabling informed choice, making it clear that these are not secondary options. You know, doing an apprenticeship at 18 is a highly valued option and that's what we should be promoting. Equally, if you choose to go into the world of work and come back to education later date, that is a perfectly acceptable choice. And I think just, you know, schools, us at UCAS, you know, parents, we all have a role to play in saying there is no right choice here. You have a number of different choices and we are here to help you make as informed choice as possible. I think the other thing we can do, and we're, we're certainly in active conversations about this, is enable that that transition from school or college to university or college to, to, to go with it. Um, a This is the individual's personal circumstances. Uh, you know, this is the, if they've had a bereavement or if they've uh, been particularly stressed during their last year at school or college. And, and, and I think encouraging young, young people particularly to be more open about that, but then doing something with that information to put any support that they might feel helpful around them because it's a big transition if you're 18 and going to university but it's maybe the first time you've lived alone um, you're worried about making friends we know that from some of our survey work and so I think anything we can do if you've then got additional anxiety on top of that I think we can do a lot to, to, to smooth that transition. Yeah that's interesting do you think that from what you've seen that computing and sort of digital subjects in schools are perhaps wrongly regarded as not being as important as they should be and and sort of used almost kind of like a subject like art or sort of design and technology and not something that's sort of central and core given sort of the digital world that we're sort of increasingly living in. 
I think the the challenge with digital in schools, and when I say digital, I mean everything from information management through to you know core technologies, is that it, it's changing so rapidly. Um, and therefore, teachers, lecturers need to keep up to date the whole time. Then the, the problem is that teachers uh, feel a little bit on the back foot because they constantly have to keep up to date their professional development, probably more than any other subject that they, they teach in schools and, and colleges. So I don't think it's necessarily deprioritised. I just think it's more challenging to be bang up to date and to be super relevant to a very young student base. Yeah, that's interesting. As a woman, you've risen to evidently a very senior level in your career. What do you think needs to be done to help break the glass ceiling and create more gender diversity across senior leadership, whether it's in private or public sector? Yeah, I, I think this is a really difficult one because I don't think there's one thing. You know, I think gender is one of a number of characteristics that need real focus and ethnicity would be a particular one. I think there's uh, lots you can do in terms of trying to, so what we're doing in recruitment terms, and we've just, we're just uh, been put up as a finalist for a Women in Tech uh, Award, because we particularly, like a lot of organisations, struggle with women in digital roles, technology roles. And so actually going to, whether it's jobs boards or recruitment firms who specialise in women in tech, I think is, you know, one of those avenues you can look at, you know, having um, shortlists for interview that, you know, are gender balanced is another way that you can do it. You have more on your shortlist or long list but perhaps both male and female I think in terms of in the actual workplace and that's obviously I think recruitment is a big thing but in the actual workplace it's about uh, flexible working arrangements it's about a culture in the organization that doesn't look down on flexible working arrangements that actually says you know if you want to go four days a week and that works better for you because you've got perhaps young children or something like that whether you're male or female then that's something we will take serious consideration of you know and we do an awful lot of that which makes it easier for then women to say, do you know what, I will go for that promotion because I know I'll be able to do that on four four days a week and still perhaps do pick up from school one day a week. And so you are starting to break that glass ceiling with some of those uh, flexible working practices. I think my personal advice as, as well to any women who are listening is that don't ever take, you know, potentially an interaction with somebody who is a male chauvinist and let that knock you back. Because there will be occasions where you get sexism and actually try and succeed in spite of that. And and that's very difficult to say. It's more difficult to do. So I think there's something in there about building some personal resilience just to when those couple of things happen, and hopefully you'll only ever experience it once or twice. But but if you do, and if it gets serious, then you need to take it seriously and talk to HR. But but if it's, you know, just a sort of an aside by somebody, just brush it off. Don't pay them any attention and move on. And that's some of the things that I've had to do during during my career is um, just brush things aside. But now I'm in a position of seniority, you know, I think it's absolutely incumbent on me, whether it is gender or ethnicity, to make sure recruitment is really casting a wide net to make sure when people come here, they feel there's an inclusive culture that we accept people from all walks of life and that we are truly flexible in terms of how we work. And obviously, you know, the, the global pandemic has meant that it's enabled us to recruit from much, much further afield because we are all, you know, either fully remote working or semi. That's great. What do you think are the biggest challenges for UCAS going forward? I think there's a number. My top three, because I get asked this quite a lot, I certainly think um, the t- two of the top three pretty much never change. One of them is about uh, relevance and delivery. 
So, you know, UCAS has been around for a long time um, and it must never, ever get apathetic. And so and this is this goes the same for any organisation, public or private, I think. So particularly in UCAS's context, then we need to be super relevant to a global audience looking to come to UKHE. And at the moment, we're not as relevant as I would like to think we are. You know, lots of international students will want a one stop shop when they're coming to UKHE and that's something we need to achieve. We're also not as relevant in the, the vocational and technical education space as I would like to see us. So so relevancy is, is absolutely key to UCAS's future and delivery of products and services that meet that relevancy. I think the second thing would be a, a cultural piece, which is about the ability to adapt and flex and be truly customer centric. And those are, you know, we've got five values we refreshed um, just a couple of years ago. But having, you know, we have a workforce of 430 people. And if you've got um, a staff group of 430 people who understand your strategy, who understand the need to be relevant, who are in constant contact with customers and who can adapt and be agile based on changing circumstances externally, then you're you're pretty onto a good thing. So I spend a lot of my time, you asked me at the beginning what I spend you know, my time doing, I spend a lot of time engaging with staff. Um, and, and obviously, you know, I used to do that a lot by management walking about or picking up the phone or texting, still do the, the text. And the, and the phone, but a lot over video conference now, um, given the, the, the offices are, are not as populated as they once were. So I think those, um, those are my top two. I think uh, for UCAS, again, going back to, you know, you said the opportunity or the challenge uh, moving forward is also we are in a world where um, the pandemic has hit most businesses. So there is an immediate priority for us uh, to pivot parts of our business that perhaps weren't pivoted before. So things like our physical events, pivoting all of those to virtual, um, making that engaging, I think is really important. Um, but also being really, really, really aware of our external landscape and particularly the political landscape in both Westminster, but also the three devolved nations and, mm-hmm. and where emissions reform might come from uh, in each of those four devolved nations and being ahead of that. So quite a lot in there, Daniel, but um, those are some of the things that, that pretty much don't change whenever anyone asks me that question. No, that's interesting. Could you tell us about what, how results day and clearing looks like from inside the UCAS office? I imagine it must be very busy. Yeah, so I've done four. And what the taking out 2020, what the three clearing periods and results days have taught me is that it's all hands to the pump and everybody has a role to play. So whether you're a technologist and we have 100 plus technologists who, you know, developers and architects and analysts who work for us. And we have a big volunteer team who, because of the volume of calls we get on days like results day, but not exclusively results days. We have a lot of people who go on the phones to applicants and get trained up myself included, on peak days like January application deadlines or results days. So, you know, in a, in a usual year, you would see uh, lots of people uh, sitting in uh, bits of the building that have been converted to take more people on the phones mm-hmm. to applicants. You'd see a, a media hub. So you'd have pretty much every media outlet from the BBC to Sky to Channel 4, uh, all here with cameras. We usually have a VIP on results day. So that might be um, Secretary of State, Damien Hines. A number of a number of different ministers, so that also needs planning meticulously. So um, obviously, 2020 was different. We went fully remote that first week week of uh, lockdown in March. So all of our customer experience staff, so 30 plus of them, all were taking calls um, remotely from home. 
and therefore results days we had about 30 to 40 people in the building in what's called our joint operations center where we monitor every single bit of technology that makes the whole overall system work we monitor how universities are accessing how applicants are accessing our different systems um, so that joint operations center we're in everybody else was working from home so it was a very different experience you know we went from 400 people in the building to 40 um, uh, because of COVID. It felt very safe because um, our facilities team have made it exceptionally safe, the building, um, but no VIPs, no, no media. All the media uh, we did from a local university and their TV studio, there was more media than ever, but it was all done down the line. Yeah. If you had to give some tips to students at university or who are just about to school, go into university and secondary school, what, what would they be? So let's start off with those that are not yet at university. And these are very difficult times. And so in the context of a global pandemic, it's pretty difficult for everybody. My one bit of advice for you would be to really work hard. You know, it's a big step from you know, A-levels or equivalent qualifications through to university. So you want to put yourself in the best place and working hard will be the best. And be ambitious in your choices would be my second tip for those looking to go to university. You know, it really is important um, when you have your five choices to make sure one of them is really, you know, where you aspire to. But I think those at university, enjoy it. I, I know it's different from previous years. I know the social experience much, must be much of a disappointment, I'd imagine, compared to what you envisage university to be in many places. But try and make the most of it. And I think something that's very easy to say and much harder to do is you don't stress it too much. These are wonderful years of your life. Most of you are healthy and you're young. And if you're a mature student, you know, you've still got a lot of experience behind you. So they're great years to really get into that learning zone. Um, and so try and enjoy it and, and don't stress too much. And that sounds like great advice. I think that probably wraps it up for today. Thank you very much for listening. I thought that was a very interesting discussion and also a bit different to what's usually on the programme. I want to extend a big thank you, obviously, to Claire for taking the time uh, to speak with us and stay tuned for more exciting episodes. Thank you, Daniel.